0: Good vibrations. Bye, good vibration, well, good vibration, good good, si, good. good 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 good, barb- good, I, it's, it's I good, good She's good Hi, this is Brent White. It's Thursday, February 22nd, and this is devotional podcast number 16. It's a long one, so stick with me. You're listening to the Beach Boys song, Good Vibrations, which I recorded from their 1967 album, Smiley Smile. This was the album that the band released in place of their unfinished masterpiece, Smile. This album, a hastily assembled consolation prize, is actually quite charming in its own right. Anyway, in addition to Good Vibrations being a number one hit for the band, the song was also the most expensive pop single ever recorded. Brian Wilson worked on it for months. Last week, after another national tragedy, many people apparently urged us to send out our thoughts and prayers for the victims and their families. Not that I saw or heard anyone calling for thoughts and prayers this time, but I certainly saw the backlash against people calling for thoughts and prayers. It's not enough to send thoughts and prayers, these people said in various ways. No more thoughts and prayers. Do something real instead. And I get it. When someone asks for thoughts and prayers or says that they're sending out thoughts and prayers, it often sounds glib and empty. And believe me, I also get that the subtext of these complaints is as much about politics as theology. These critics are talking more about what politicians have or haven't done than they are about God. I know that, but they're still talking enough about God to bother me a little, which is why I'm talking about it. Let me begin by agreeing in part with these critics. From a Christian point of view, no amount of positive thinking or sympathetic thinking or compassionate thinking by itself can accomplish anything. We don't really believe in good vibrations, right? As much as we love the song, and I do love that song. God doesn't respond to good vibrations. He responds to prayer. Or doesn't he? For those of us who are his children who have been adopted into his family through faith in his son and for whom God is our Father. Can we trust our Father to take care of us? This is surely one of the most important questions of our time. And I'm not mostly addressing this question as an apologetic concern you know, so that we can give a defense of our faith to skeptical people who don't believe in God and might use last week's tragedy as an excuse to say, see, how can you believe in a good, loving, merciful God who lets children and their teachers and coaches get murdered like that? Those are important questions, and I've I've blogged a lot about them over the years, but today I'm talking to those of us who already believe in the God revealed in the Bible. I'm talking to my people, to fellow Christians. Do we believe that our Heavenly Father will take care of us? Do we believe that He'll supply all our needs so that we can be truly happy, so that we can know true joy? Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 6:25 to 34. I'll read an excerpt. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That promises that God will take care of his children, surely it's this one. Is it true? Is Jesus telling the truth, especially in light of some of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8:35 to 39 There, before promising that nothing, no amount of suffering can separate us from the love of God... He says that he and his fellow apostles have experienced and are experiencing tribulation, distress, persecution, danger, sword, famine, and nakedness. Notice famine and nakedness. But didn't Jesus just say that our Father will provide us with food and clothing? So which is it? Will Christians suffer famine and nakedness or will our Father supply all things? I love what John Piper says on this subject. Let me read the following which comes from his book Don't Waste Your Life. What then does Jesus mean all these things, all your food and clothing will be added to you when you seek the kingdom of God first? He means the same thing he meant when he said some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish Luke twenty one sixteen to eighteen. He meant that you will have everything you need to do His will and be eternally and supremely happy in Him. Piper continues, How much food and clothing are necessary? Necessary for what, we must ask? Necessary to be comfortable? No, Jesus did not promise comfort. Necessary to avoid shame? No, Jesus called us to bear shame for His name with joy. Necessary to stay alive? No, he did not promise to spare us death of any kind. Persecution and plague consume the saints. Christians die on the scaffold, and Christians die of disease. And editor's note here, Christians die from rounds fired from an AR-15. Piper continues... That's why Paul wrote, "We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." Romans 8:23. What Jesus meant was that our Father in heaven would never let us be tested beyond what we are able. 1 Corinthians 10:13. If there is one scrap of bread that you need as God's child in order to keep your faith in the dungeon of starvation, You will have it. God does not promise enough food for comfort or life. He promises enough so that you can trust him and do his will. So, we'll get enough of what we need to do his will. No matter what his will is for us. No matter how painful or scary his will for us might be. The question is, do we want to do His will above all else? Do we believe, along with the Westminster Catechism, that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Do we want what God wants for us, or do we want something else? Let me speak for myself. I am someone who has always had ambition, and I'm not talking here about, you know, Godly ambition, the desire to share the gospel with millions, for example. I'm speaking about career ambition. Even though it has not served me well, even though it has taken a toll on me, it has always been a part of me. Long before I went into ministry, I have been an ambitious person. I want people to, I want to, first of all, I want to achieve, you know, great things, you know, in, in worldly terms. And I want people to recognize that I've achieved great things. I want them to appreciate me, to love me, not so much for who I am, but for what I achieve. This sin is deeply embedded within me. Back in the late 90s, I was nearly finished getting my electrical engineering degree from Georgia Tech. This was my second degree from there for a second career. So, yes, pastoral ministry was my third career. Anyway, I had a friend, I'll call him Andrew, who graduated from Tech with a different degree many years earlier. He went on to get a law degree from Emory and became a consultant with one of the big accounting uh, companies. And from my perspective, he was, well, he was the kind of success that I wanted to be. Not that I wanted to be him exactly. I mean, his job seemed deadly dull, but if I could achieve his level of success in my career, well, then I would know that I had arrived. I would know I was somebody. I, I would stop this anxious striving and be, content if I could just be like Andrew. Anyway, Andrew was in Atlanta on business, and we met for dinner. After a couple of beers, he told me something that surprised me. He said, you know, I majored in electrical engineering at Tech, at first, and I couldn't handle it. My grades were terrible. I went on academic probation. I had to change majors. Not getting that degree is my life's biggest regret. The truth is, Andrew said, I'm a little jealous of you. And I'm like, jealous of me? What on earth is there to be jealous of? From my perspective, my friend had everything. If you can have everything and still feel jealousy or resentment, what's the good of having everything? which goes to show how badly distorted our self-image often is. So, this is what it comes down to. If worldly success is your goal, you'll never get enough of it to be happy. If any worldly thing is your goal, you'll never get enough of it to be happy. Years ago, before he died by suicide, actor Robin Williams gave an interview in which he was talking about the elusiveness of happiness. And here's a talented actor and comedian who won an Academy Award, multiple Golden Globes, Grammys, Emmys, had a had a number one primetime TV show, starred in some of the most financially successful and critically acclaimed movies ever made, lived in mansions, dated supermodels, was beloved by millions. And what did he say about all this success? No matter what dizzying heights of fame and fortune you achieve, he said, you bottom out. People say, you have an Academy Award. The Academy Award lasted about a week. Then one week later, people are going, Hey, Mork, you bottom out, he said. Well, it's certainly been true for me. I have bottomed out many times. God has allowed or caused me to bottom out. He's very good at that. And I think he does it so that I can learn or relearn this one thing. I will never get what I want until I learn to want what God wants for me. Let me repeat. I will never get what I want until I learn to want what God wants for me. None of us will. Lord, please help me learn this difficult yet profound truth. Amen.